Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On today's show, we're going to be talking about non-compete clauses and the way they have proliferated across the working world, specifically, I think, in the tech and tech-related industries. It seems like a lot of the stories we've been seeing about non-compete clauses comes from that field, but by no means is it exclusive to the world of tech, uh, a world that we have talked about many times on Punching Out in recent years. I guess to start the show off, it might be good to give listeners just a basic definition of what we're talking about here. Obviously, the name sounds self-explanatory, but Noah, I think you can explain it too. Non-complete gloss is uh, the Santa's least favorite brother. No, bad. In all seriousness, it is killed in a- December. But <laughs> yeah. Well, whose fault is that? (laughs) At any rate, the definition of this, Webster's Dictionary, no. It is a part of a contract that basically says it, it can take a bunch of different shapes, which is part of why it's so insidious. It can be anything from after you are laid off, fired, or leave a company voluntarily, you cannot work in the same industry. You cannot work in the same industry within the same region which could be 50, 100 miles, whatever. It could be that you cannot work on you can't work on projects that could compete with what your company does while on company time or at all, depending on the clause. It could be that you can't honestly, like it it part of the problem is that it, all of this is restrictive. They're all bad. We joked off air that this could be the shortest episode on punching out history because it, it's obvious on its face. This is terrible for workers, but they take a million different shapes, especially because a lot of the time workers are being pushed into signing them in places where they are illegal or unenforceable. And the reason that we're talking about them is because this January, the Federal Trade Commission decided to do its job and publish a rule which or or publish a rule proposal by Commissioner Lena Khan that basically would kill non-compete clauses with pretty much no exceptions. And that's good. Like, it's mm-hmm. sort of surprising to see such a, you know, so often we see policies from democratic administrations that have all these carve outs and niches and you know the famous example of loan forgiveness for people who start a nonprofit in, you know <laughs> in less than 3 years after they graduate a community college you know stuff like that you forgot the economically disadvantaged neighborhood and they had to be yeah. a Pell Grant recipient yes how could you <laughs> so the fact that they're proposing just 
a blanket ban on non-compete clauses is encouraging, but also comes as a surprise. According to the FTC and their proposal, these clauses are, you know, keeping workers from, is it $300 billion a year annually? Just. Yeah, that's what they said. You know, this would have a huge impact. The, the estimate was that 30 million Americans would be benefited by this rule. Now, I did notice that the figures on how many American workers are covered by some kind of non-compete uh, fluctuated. Some of the articles we had put the figure at around somewhere between 10 and 20 percent. Another one put it north of 25 percent, if I remember correctly. And again, that's because they can take so many different forms. They can involve things like non-disclosure agreements or non-disparagement agreements. There's just too many ways that a company can include this kind of fine print in its employment contract. And so it's depending on what you say you're banning, the number of people affected by it changes, which is partly because companies love to get around the law. Corporations love breaking the law. It's their favorite thing. But also because they've been around for decades now, and there's basically no way to tell without actually surveying workers who very often can't or don't want to tell you what's in the contract. Yeah. uh, The nature of contracts being what it is, like you have to enter into one to work for a company. And so often there's a lot of boilerplate language in those contracts that, you know, given the time to examine every clause, you might not agree to every clause. You might not, the libertarian fantasy of all of this is that you are volunteering to serve out every part of a contract. But in fact, when signing up for a job, there are a lot of things that you wouldn't volunteer for if you didn't need a job. There's, you know, a power imbalance there that naturally uh, means a lot of this stuff, you know, workers find themselves in situations that they wouldn't have chosen to be in. Yeah, the the example I like to use of the, that power imbalance is exactly like a, the terms and service on an app on your phone. I I don't I can't pick and choose what I will agree to and what I won't. It's a blanket thing that I have to agree to whatever terms are in there because I'm not reading it because who cares? I don't have a choice. I can I my options are I agree or I don't use the app or the product. That's it, and that's exactly how it works in the labor market. Um, where you really don't have that much leverage, especially if you are on an immigrant visa or you're this is your first job or anything like that. Interestingly, a lot of these non-competes tend to, like they do affect the tech industry, but they also attack, uh, affect CEOs. So the fact that CEOs and, and the people with the most power in the lab, like, quote-unquote labor industry also don't like these non-compete clauses because it limits their options. It should be a huge blaring signal to anybody else that this is not a good thing and we don't like non-competes. Well, most importantly, it limits their compensation, which means that this is an issue that will be solved sooner or later because you can't deny people who do nothing but drink coffee and go to meetings all day the money that they haven't earned. 
So just so, just so everybody knows, a little bit of hope. CEOs are mad about this, so something will be done. It might not be good, but it'll get done. Also, I wanted to mention the terms and services thing is a particularly apt comparison because some of us, and by some of us I mean me, didn't even see a full contract when we were hired. It was my first job. And years later, I discovered that what I thought was my full contract was not my full contract. And there was a bunch of fine print that I had not been shown. We don't have a union. We don't have any. We couldn't pool our money together to uh, hire a lawyer to look over stuff. I think eventually we did find somebody to do it. But basically, for a, several years, we had to fight our workplace just to have a contract that was available. Because they kept insisting the employee handbook was basically in place of that, which, by the way, it's not. That's not how that works. Yeah, and if I'm you're... pretty sure it's illegal to make an employee handbook any kind of version of a contract. I'm yeah. pretty sure that's illegal. Yeah, side, but, side note. but enforcement is nine-tenths of the law. And if you don't have the power to enforce that on your employer, which most of us don't, then so be it. Actually, this also gets to something I wanted to, I had been thinking about, which is that for me personally, this is like the third tech episode we've done in the past month or so. Not the past month, past couple months, maybe. But, well, the reason that companies are kind of willing to negotiate on non-compete clauses and things like that, if you bring a lawyer to the table, which I realize is a big requirement up front, is because they know that it, there's a tight labor market. And so you can't always guarantee that you're going to be able to find somebody else to fill the position if everybody knows that you're going to tell them, no, you can't work on your indie side project on company time. And when workers have get paid that much, expect that many benefits because that's what they've gotten and they are able to negotiate their way out of terrible clauses and they brag about it online because they do. Sometimes it is pretty hard to think like, yeah, but that's still an issue. But the thing about it is that it is, because not only does it trickle up to CEOs, but this to me is evidence of creeping neo-feudalism. This is companies realizing that their commitment to the free market no longer works if workers are aware of their power as a labor force. And so now they have to go back to, no, actually, you are now bound to the land. This is, well, I was going to say Dune, but with computers, but that literally doesn't make sense. Yeah, I think Dune has computers, bud. It it does not. That's the whole. They had a whole war about this. What are you doing? I'm not going to weigh in on matters of Dune. That's not my area of expertise on this show. One of the articles we read in preparation for this episode comes from Vice, and it focuses on workers in the video game industry. Uh, it's headline how restrictive contracts and stifle and control creativity in the video game industry author is Patrick Klepek. And it focuses on workers in that industry who would like to be able to do stuff on their own time or do stuff for their friends, but feel that the contracts they've signed to work for the companies they work for uh, places like Ubisoft and EA who make up, you know, large chunks of the video game industry if those companies chose to enforce those contracts, chose to enforce the letter of those contracts, they'd be in trouble doing something as simple as 
you know, helping a friend, you know, sort out his code for a project. The level of restriction is that intense, you know, something like a favor could in theory violate these contracts. And Noah, as I think you noted in the tech industry, you know, if you come to the table with a lawyer, they might back off on some of this stuff because some of this stuff is technically illegal already, but a lot of workers don't have the time and money and effort to bring a lawyer to the table. They don't want to have that fight and, you know, have to deal with the consequences in the interim. So the video game industry, something we've talked about on Punching Out before, you know, this is white collar work. These workers are well paid in comparison to a lot of other workers, but nevertheless, they are under the thumb of contracts like this that prevent them from following their passions, following, you know, the things they want to do even outside of their own time. To the point of what you said about these things happening or these uh, non-competes showing up even when they're illegal, the protocol article text non-compete agreements hurt workers and anger some lawmakers by Megan Rose Dickey mentions the rate at which non-competes happen in illegal jurisdictions like California uh, is the same as the rates of non-competes in other jurisdictions where they're still technically legal. So Silicon Valley people and, and companies who know that they can't do these contracts still put them in because of the incredible imbalance between workers' rights and knowledge and the company's rights and knowledge, or, or power and knowledge, not rights. Just making it illegal doesn't necessarily stop every stop them from happening. They just can't really enforce them. So they're, they're relying on workers to self-enforce on that. Yeah. And to be honest, as a worker, as an American worker, given the zero education that you are given under labor rights, it's not surprising that people agree to these, even in California, where they're illegal, or Washington, where they're restricted. And this is why the FTC action is good, because it's a blanket ban. And it's basically the FTC commissioners, the Democratic commissioners, saying, you took this way too far. So we're just going to take the toy away. You you went way too far on this one, so it has to go. It, because you do get the sense that even, even the kind of presidency that has Jenna Bruzzo as NLRB general counsel and sends her to roast a bunch of restaurateurs uh, for presumably like half an hour, even that presidency probably wants to find a golden mean, a way to work with the kind of industries that do this. But the problem is that one, a lot of tech industry people are libertarian chuds that are fundamentally opposed to working at all with any kind of uh, democratic administration. And two, my guess is Joe Biden really hates tech people. And between those two, this is an this is a an act of pettiness that might actually help the American worker, which is why I have to be all for it. There's a point that sometimes gets made in debates over like <clears throat> welfare systems and public benefits that you know you could in theory design a system such that nobody who isn't over a certain threshold is 
receiving benefits, you could do the means testing and create, you know, the ideal system in somebody's mind. But the actual like administration of that system would be such a pain in the ass that as to not even be worth it, you would spend so much time trying to make sure that nobody is above the income threshold or whatever you want to set that you end up excluding people who deserve benefits. And I think in this case, there's something similar happening where the simplicity of an all out ban outweighs whatever marginal benefit you might get from a more measured resolution here that, you know, has these carve outs because inevitably the existence of the carve outs would mean that companies are just doing the same thing because enforcement is that much trickier and that much more of a hassle for people who need the enforcement. I want to quote a bit from this Vice article just to give you know listeners some specifics as to the sorts of things we're talking about here. They quote uh, Scott Hartsman, a developer with a specialty for MMOs, which is games like World of Warcraft, for example, quoting from the article, Hartsman told Waypoint about a situation early in their career, right out of high school, where he'd worked with a developer for a handful of years before feeling burnout. This was a moment in time when he was a, quote, broke college student where every dollar earned is going straight into tuition, rent, or ramen. After leaving, he joined up with a friend's company, and it wasn't more than a week before a cease and desist showed up from his previous employer. The letter was informing me that I was in direct violation of my non-compete with my former RPG company, said Hartsman, by helping my friend with his poker and chess communities. And further, that my profoundly broke self and my friend and his company would be sued in whichever jurisdiction it was that was in a different state if I didn't stop immediately. He's not rich. I'm far from rich. A fight is out of the question. I did ask the company if I could be released from it or if they could understand how it didn't imply. The response was, no, if we can't have you, then neither can anyone else. Remember, you agreed to it, which is just a monstrous example of lawyerese, a monstrous example of litigating your way to power. I don't even know what to say to that situation. I'd say it's bad. Yeah. I mean, that's the simple. To put it succinctly. I mean, we've, we used to have until the HR listserv figured out that I was on it and stopped sending emails, we used to have an entire series of episodes covering this exact kind of thing, but from the positive like, ooh, let's all conference about how we shouldn't have to train employees anymore, or how you can take advantage of every loophole in contract law to make your employees work longer, or how the only people who should be worried about about ICE are employers, with a capital E. This is... The kind of stuff, what what's happening here is that this is finally becoming something that's reported on because they've always talked to each other about this stuff. I know there are some jobs, for a while there, it was like on Vogue to not allow, you couldn't give references for employees who left the job. And it, I work in a school because I'm a teacher, 20 minutes, Whoa. 53 seconds. And historically, in the education market, you do that. You give references or recommendation letters the same as you would for your students when they go off to college. Because oftentimes, the job of teaching is so subjective that the only way you're going to know, hey, we're getting a good egg, is if somebody puts in a good word for you. 
And then we got a new human resources person a while back who had come entirely from the world of healthcare and corporations and decided, no, screw that. We're not doing that anymore. And that was a direct attack on the prospects of everybody working there if they wanted to leave. That was a way to lash us to the building because it would become that much harder for you to find another job. Of course, that person could have known that the pandemic was going to happen and you know teacher shortages were going to happen. And so it would have many of us had no trouble finding other work anyway. But the principle was bad. And it's because companies have a deep-seated issue with the idea of not controlling every second of their workers' lives. And for way too long a time, everybody who could prosecute them about it, everybody who could enforce any kind of laws about that has been completely uninterested in doing so. In most of the articles that we read for this episode, the people who are being interviewed are former Justice Department antitrust people who now work at private law firms. I'm going to go ahead and guess that the majority of the time, if they're working on those cases now, they are not on the side of the angels anymore. This is a problem we already know with the SEC that has like a revolving door policy where you can go defend people who defraud, well, people we actually are supposed to care about because they run the quote-unquote economy, and then they come back to the Justice Department, they work there for a couple of years, and then they go back out there into the private world and teach companies how to avoid prosecution. So this is just another example of the same thing. Every arm of the state that could be out there enforcing these laws is losing because they've got the leftovers while all the high-powered lawyers are on the other side. Yeah. It should be noted here, you know, we've talked about how employers are skirting the law in a lot of these cases. The Vice article at least talks about workers who are just skirting the clauses and hoping their companies won't notice or won't enforce them. To quote from the article, another developer who, like others, asked to remain anonymous to avoid putting their job in jeopardy was working at a high-profile video game company where an arm of the company also produced films. Because of that Hollywood connection, the developer was not allowed to touch movies either, even though elements of their job had transferable skills between the two worlds. Despite nothing about their day-to-day job involving film, because of the corporate connections, they were told to turn down any opportunities to work on movies. Turns out I just did it anyway without telling anybody, the developer told me. My non-compete did absolutely prevent me from getting extra work if I followed the rules. They, they also talk about a, a developer here who worked on a friend's indie project and had his name be a fake name in the credits until he had enough distance between him and his employer to have the name changed to his real name. It's good that they are able to sneak around these clauses in this way, but it seems like a lot of effort and we shouldn't be making workers put in that extra effort to do what they want to do on their own time. Again, it just, Non-compete clauses are not good. They're bad. And I don't know if either of the two of you have another more creative way of saying that before we close the segment. Okay. In that case, we will end the segment. And when we come back, we're going to talk a bit about what all this signifies about the broader systems at play. I promise it'll be more specific than that. We'll be back. 
You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. We spent our first segment today talking about non-compete clauses, which have been you know, restricting the movement of workers in all sorts of industries, but primarily we talked about the tech industry in the first segment. Actually, there was a bit we failed to get to in that segment. The Economic Policy Institute in 2019 tried to take some measurement of you know who all these non-compete clauses are affecting. And at least in their sample and their study, something like 25% of workers with just a high school diploma were you know, at a workplace where people were having non-compete clauses in their contract, you know, so it's not just the white collar workers at places like Google and video game companies that are subject to these things, even though that's who we read about because they, I guess, have the resources to speak to media. Another thing that we didn't quite touch on in the first segment, because it's a little tangential, The NLRB recently overturned a 2020 ruling that it had made during the Trump era about severance agreements and what companies were allowed to place in those agreements in exchange for workers getting severance pay. Under Trump's uh, NLRB, companies effectively were given free reign to craft severance contracts that entailed workers giving up rights that they would otherwise have under the National Labor Relations Act in exchange for severance pay. And just this past week, Biden's NLRB overturned that. They said, well, no, this isn't cool. This We're going back to the old ways. You can't just make workers give up their rights in exchange for pay. That's not how rights work. The NLRB doing a Lord forgive me, it's time to go back to the old me, really? <laughs> you know, I, I I assume that's how Jennifer Abruzzo worded it. Yeah. I I especially think it's noticeable that the NLRB is doing a hey Neil Gorsuch, drop dead move here, because we currently have a faction of the Supreme Court that their whole thing is like if you signed on the dotted line, you have no rights. You are nothing. You are a non-person, and uh, the state doesn't really exist and can't protect you from anything. All there is is private contract law. So the fact that the NLRB is like, no, we're just going to become no big deal. We're just going to be an actual rulemaking body, which is the thing we were supposed to do. But for like 80 years, nobody made us do it. We're going to do it again. It's going to be a thing again. Pretty encouraging. Same with the FTC. Would be nice if that were rewarded in some way, shape, or form, but I'm sure the rest of the Biden administration, and specifically I'm thinking with the Secretary of Transportation, will find a way to squander all of that goodwill and then some. Part of the reason why I bring this up is because I happen to have a conversation with my girlfriend earlier today about a you know Brag. severance contract that she was being asked 
to sign, uh, you know, when being let go by her previous company, a nonprofit company. And she had the luxury of having a lawyer look at the contract and, you know, told her effectively, don't sign this. Like, this is way too broad. If you get into an argument with somebody on the subway who happens to work for this nonprofit, you could be found in violation of the severance agreement. Like, it was that broad in terms of how it defined disparaging the company and, you know, what you cannot do in exchange for a month of severance pay, which, yeah. And, the way these work and the way non-compete contracts or clauses so often work is that companies kind of expect workers to not go to those lengths of actually looking into them. They kind of expect that a certain amount of intimidation or like you're going to need this severance pay will result in workers signing on the dotted line without actually looking into what that entails. And And so a lot of this stuff just kind of slips by without being noticed because, well, for a lot of people, what are you going to do? You know, got to work somewhere. Well, that and we are in a country and in a cultural moment where a lot of people are not just unaware of their rights as workers, but like perfectly happy to hand them over to companies at at most, they might say, oh, yeah, you know, I got screwed by that company or at that job or whatever. But people are so, and we've talked about this on Punching Out a million times at this point, but it is absurd to me from an outside point of view, culturally speaking, how different people's attitudes are when the government tells them to do something versus when a private corporation tells them to do something, especially in an era where we all seem to know deep down that the balance there is definitely in favor of the private sector. It is very strange to still see people kind of thinking, no, 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 this might suck, but this is just the way that things are. Because I'm a worker. This isn't like, you know, if the police or the health department or the DMV or, I don't know, a crossing guard tell me what I can't do. This isn't the same. This is my boss. And they obviously would have some measure of the best interests of the economy at heart. And they don't. What they ultimately care about is control. That's it. Lou and I had a conversation where she asked me to fact check because one of my degrees is in medieval history, whether a non-compete clause is like serfdom. And I'm not sure that it literally is. I'm not sure that you can make a, a, a complete analog there, but I can say that it represents the same exact kind of spirit. These are companies, companies cannot deal with the possibility that you own any part of yourself. They were willing to do the free market thing As long as it meant so, you know, it was the free market means you should shut up and not unionize because then we'll outsource your job. The free market means that we'll support civil rights when white workers are largely empowered to argue for their rights. So we're going to start taking advantage of workers uh, that we can introduce into a labor market to uh, sort of push back on that. The the free market means that you should be happy that somebody younger is going to take your job because you should be lucky to have one at all. So shut up. 
the moment that it became clear that there is a chance, a growing wave of worker solidarity, which has been very incremental for decades, but the fact that you slowly had more and more generations who were willing to say, no, actually, I want more out of my job than uh, I, I want my rights. I want a job that treats me like a human being and not a cog in a machine. The result was, no, actually, we hate the free market. We've hated it this whole time. We don't like competition. We actually just want to control you. Right. And I, I think you're smoothly segueing into what was supposed to be the point of this segment, which is talking about you know, so much of what we hear about capitalism and about the capital E economy is that it relies on competition. Competition is supposed to bring out the best for everybody. You know, companies compete on price and workers compete on what they can do and customers get the best. Everybody's happy at the end of the day. Rising tide lifts everybody's boat. What could go wrong? But as I think these sorts of instances illustrate, competition isn't actually the priority. It's, you know, it gets talked about in arguments. It gets used as, you know, the rhetorical reason why all of this is supposed to work. But it's not actually the priority of the people who make the economy run. It's not, you know, capitalism is an economy that is run at the behest of capitalists and they are not particularly interested in competition. They, in, in their world, they would be the only companies in their industry. They would be, you know, completely dominant. You know, every capitalist would love if they had a monopoly because why wouldn't they want that? That would be what's best for them. That's in their self-interest and competition. That's, just an econ 101 textbook argument it's not actually something that these companies are striving for it's not something that they want to exist that's that's exactly right like it's it is i'd even go so far to say that competition is not the point in econ 101 because if you look at microeconomics um, basically, the whole point of it is to create a product and, and a situation such that you do not have to price based on competition. You can price based on your, the flavor of your toothpaste, the fact that you offer heated seats versus the other guy. Like you're, you're not competing based on actual competition. You're, you're creating a monopoly on your thing. Noah's looking a little confused, but that is exactly the point, is you're trying to create non-price competitiveness so that you can to so that you can create your own little micro monopoly within that thing. That's that's the whole thing behind brand loyalty and recognition. So that you don't have to specifically compete with other things because you know I'm only a Coca-Cola person or I am only a Pepsi person. That's that's the whole point. And they they say that like that is the first one of the first things you learn is that you cannot sustain a business if you are competing on price. You can't do it. And so that's why things like grocery stores and agriculture have such narrow margins to the point where they are basically not profitable for the average person. You have to build it up so that you are the only person. That's the only way you will make money. So yeah, competition is not how it actually works. They want to sell us on competition 
because that's how we give them all of these powers in order to create situations in which they're the only product or only company to work with. Which is particularly interesting in light of the fact that a lot of corporate funded educational projects are in fact pushing collaboration instead of competition. It's not solidarity, mind you, that obviously it's never going to be that. It's collaboration. You should all be good little worker bees together while we run the world for you yes. and tell and you what to do. Collaboration versus competition, that's just called a cartel. Uh, when you're in the business world, that's what it's called. Yeah. It, it's getting, because we do often talk about the idea of you know, like school schedules and whatever, being a way to get people used to waking up at a certain time, going to work, and then coming home, like a routine, homework, being a way to get uh, kids used to the idea that you take work home, that kind of thing. And some of those are very defensible and some of them are less so. But the major point of it is this is one where I've always been like, but why would somebody like, I don't know, uh, Bill Gates, the Broad Foundation, that kind of thing, why would they be interested in collaboration as a thing? Because that's where you develop like group instincts. That's where you develop the ability to sort of communicate and complain about things and, and so on. Why would you ever want that? But the fact is that they are encouraging that for very specific subsets of students who are then going to become the leaders of local and, and state and so on cartels, the people who are going to lead these businesses and see it as natural that actually no, the same few families control everything. So yep, exactly. Know, again, that. aristocracy by any other name. And I guess where this ties into the discussion we had in the previous segment is that, well, these non-compete clauses are explicitly like a barrier to econ 101 efficiency like you're not getting the maximum efficiency out of the market out of the industry if a worker isn't allowed to go to another company to you know ply his trade there was an example in the protocol article of you know worker who had to wait 18 months before they were allowed to work for another company in the same field because that's what their contract stated. That's not something that is in the interest of efficiency because efficiency isn't the point. Efficiency is the buzzword that gets used to tell you this is what capitalism produces. Efficiency is maybe at best a byproduct, but it's extremely not the point. Yeah, it's a byproduct only in like circumstances where you've failed to do your job as an actual business owner. Um, another il example of when efficiency is efficiency for thee, but not for me, uh, is in rents, for example. Because um, I remember when I took Economics 101, it was with this absolute chud of a professor who was really trying to sell us on the idea that um, rent control was a bad thing because it meant you were inefficient in your renting market and that you were really creating housing shortage because you weren't a, you weren't hitting your supply and demand point exactly right. So that was bad. But it's funny how landlords get really upset when you try to put limits on how many units they can own so that they can set the price to whatever works for them in a monopoly situation. 
So, yeah, they don't really care about efficiency in that point. They really don't. They only care about making money and guilting everybody else into giving them money. And in terms in particular with some of these non-compete contracts in the tech industry and in creative industries, I guess is what I'm saying, because this is something that we talked about with AI art uh, houses that they don't often, some of these artists are very lucky if they ever get like a quick time video of their work. Sometimes they have to pirate their own work off the internet so that they can cut it together for a resume, which is something that, and, and some of the, some of the developers in the developers, developers, developers in the vice article mention specifically that if you treat people well and you create an environment where they want to come to work, then you don't need a non-compete. But of course, nobody wants to do that because that takes effort. And all of the effort is supposed to be on the side of the worker. But the other thing about it that strikes me is that multiple of these articles mention the fact, either because I think the FTC mentioned it or because some of the developers or firms involved mention it, that companies use the defense that they need non-competes because of trade secrets, because of IP sort of regulation. But the thing about that is that there are already laws on the books for that. And banning non-competes wouldn't stop you from subjecting employees to non-disclosure agreements and things like that that would prevent them from sharing trade secrets with a different company uh, and that are more, much more widely enforceable in that regard. And here's the thing. Those are also bad because from a supposed capitalist point of view, those should also be considered bad. Because what you want is a vibrant marketplace full of ideas and, again, competition and people inventing things and taking their talents to other firms where maybe they improve on them. In the history that we learn in school and outside of it, of how things get put together and improvements and all this weak progressive history stuff, it's always based on this idea that people just kind of, you know, things just got better as people developed their skills and talents and sort of improved on invented the better mousetrap every time. And what we know, if, and you know, if you've had a job is that actually nobody cares about that. No person who has ever run any kind of company like this has ever cared about that. Thomas Edison did not care about that. All, all he cared about was taking the credit for what his employees were doing. It's the same exact thing in the tech industry. It's the same thing in art. It's the same thing in healthcare. All of these things are covered under this IP regime that is basically built to take credit away from the people actually doing the work and slap it on, uh, what is it, like uh, the, the, I don't remember the name of any of the VFX houses because they keep disappearing or whatever video game company you work for or tech company you work for or a big pharma giant you work for, they're the ones who are going to reap all the benefits. You're lucky if you can parlay that into another job. Yeah. It occurs to me now that I'm almost positive I was made to sign a non-compete clause when starting work at my current job. I don't remember the specifics at this point, but it involved, you know, if, I wouldn't be able to start a company in the same field within like, I don't know, New York City, which is a very large place. Crushing your dreams of becoming a small business owner, the most sainted class yeah, in America. I mean, it, it really, I can think wistfully about what could have been, but really what it comes down to is that this stuff, 
ends up, I think the Vice article put it best in the headline when it said, you know, this stuff stifles creativity. It stifles, Mm -hmm. you know, in theory, the sort of innovations that we should want from the economic engine, the innovation that gets lauded as what our system produces that a, you know, more centrally planned one couldn't possibly. But again, it's not really about the innovation. It's not about the efficiency. It's not about the competition. The rhetoric is completely beside the point of what it is about, which is keeping control in the hands of the people who have control already. Yeah, I they quite enjoy it. Yeah, they do. because Well, because it's less work for them. The threats, the intimidation, all of this stuff, what it means is that they don't have to worry. They don't have to go hunting for side projects on Steam that might be under a fake name uh, from one of their developers. They don't have to go chase down every employee who leaves the company to make sure they're not, you know, sharing trade secrets, which, again, shouldn't be a problem, but whatever. And the result of all of that is you have a class of workers that are well paid that, you know, where I'm where I'm looking at it is. I have side projects that I want to do that I would like to one day make money from. And in my case, my barriers are not contractual. My barriers are, I don't have the energy and I don't have the brain cells left because all of my creativity is being devoted to my students. And I'm not going to say that that it sucks. I'm going to be honest with you. It sucks to not have the ability to work on things that I want to work on for myself and do the self-actualization piece because I'm spending it all on people who, quite frankly, are often completely unappreciative of the effort I'm making. But hey, you know what? At least the contract, as far as I know, to be fair, because again, I haven't seen the entirety of it, at least my contract does not prevent me from doing that. If that were an added problem, I cannot imagine the mental state I would be in. Also, I would 100% be breaking that contract. But you know, thank God that as far as I know, my workplace is perfectly fine with me being like, no, you can do our projects on the side. You can kind of do whatever. It's fine. That That is one huge benefit of, of working on it. Now, they're saying that because they don't think, you know, it's going to matter. But still, it's better than the situation that these workers are facing. And good on them for, for finding ways around it or for breaking a contract because it's unjust. It is inhumane. Uh, we are, we have enough problems with all the different ways in which we're losing artists uh, and and talented people to all sorts of prejudices and all sorts of barriers that we put in their way. A piece of paper that just says, you know, you can't do this, shouldn't be a roadblock. We should take a break here because. I have to take a little time to examine, you know, the punching out co-host agreement and see if Noah and Lou are violating it by working on other projects when they're not doing this show. But uh, when we come back, we're going to try to put a bow on this episode and talk about, well, if competition isn't the answer and collaboration isn't quite it either, what is, you know, how can we make things good? We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. 
You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Yo. And Lou. Hey, guys. <laughs> an, an non-compete clause prevented me from coming up with a third segment joke. <laughs> As Noah alluded to, we've been discussing non-compete clauses in the first couple segments of today's show. And for the third segment, traditionally, we try to spin things positively, and we will, but... It will be the 1st of March when this episode airs. We're getting into that time of year when Punching Out finds novel ways to insert baseball into the show. (laughs) And the angle we have discovered for today's show is an article in Labor Notes, which was uh, published last week by Brian Kalachi about how the Major League Baseball Players Association defeated non-compete clauses in order to build its union. Noah, you found this article, and um, when you stop laughing, maybe you can uh, explain it for the listeners, you know, why we're talking about Kurt Flood today. Kurt Flood, if you're the kind of baseball fan who's listening to Punching Out, you, I would imagine, are very supportive of um, baseball players getting paid what they're worth. And the reason that they can get paid close to what they're worth is because of the free agency system in MLB, which is the bane of every MLB owner and Major League Baseball as a whole. And the fact that the free agency system exists in MLB, the other sports leagues seem to regard that as like, uh, as MLB letting the side down. Like the fact that they allowed it to happen is a problem. Because again, they're all owned by people who want to control every moment of their workers' lives. And Kurt Flood was a St. Louis Cardinal, which is normally not a way I like to begin stories about personal heroes. (laughs) But he was traded to the Philadelphia Phillies against his wishes, essentially. And, And he decided to make it known that he wasn't okay with this situation. And in fact, said that he believed that being able to be moved or being able to be sold essentially to another club, and he's not wrong about this, violated the 13th Amendment, that it violates his labor rights. He he basically said, well, no, he literally said, he said, a well-paid slave is still a slave. Kurt Flood was black, as were many cardinals of the time, and his stand on that, number one, ended his career, but number two... His pushing that all the way up to the Supreme Court, which they cowarded their way out, uh, they chickened out of of having to take a possession, as they so often do, by pushing it right back to Congress. And then uh, Congress basically also kind of sidetracked the issue by just reaffirming baseball's antitrust exemption, whatever. What ended up happening is that a few years later, after Flood lost his career and the Supreme Court case, standing up for labor rights, the union basically forced the owners to come to the table and agree to have grievances settled through an arbitration process. And when two 
pitchers, Andy Messersmith and Dave McLally, uh, were they, they ended the year and they had decided their their contracts were up. And I realize now that I've gone this whole time without explaining why this was such a big deal. Teams used to have this thing called the reserve clause, which basically meant that teams owned your labor rights and they were the only ones who could buy or sell them. You did not own them yourself as a player. And so according to owners, they did this in perpetuity. They had this right in perpetuity. So it didn't matter that their contracts were up, Messersmith and McNally, their team still owned their rights. They could not sign with another team without their previous team giving them permission. That's a non-compete clause. And because of the collective bargaining agreement, the Players Association, led by Marvin Miller, who had been an economist with the United Steelworkers, took their case to an arbitrator named Peter Seitz against the owners, who basically said, no, the reserve clause should exist. And Seitz basically said, okay, what justification do you have for this? And the owners went, we're rich. And Seitz said, yeah, you still have to sign a contract. So actually, that it doesn't work that way. Like, occasionally, you 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 still have to abide by what you put your signature to. And the owners went, what? And free agency was born out of that moment. By the way, the owners <laughs> fired Peter Seitz in an obvious act of spite, spites, for ruling against them. And the result is that we have the free agency system that we have now, which has a ton of issues. We've talked about them on Punching Out several times. But it is infinitely preferable to the era when baseball players were forced to beg for their team to release them from a contract. Uh, and they did that through the power of a union. So as, as is often the case on Punching Out, guess where we ended up. One thing I like about this Labor Notes article is this paragraph here, um, quote, Flood and the Players Association did not attack the reserve clause on the grounds that it distorted a blackboard model of perfect competition, as many economists do today. Um, that might be sort of similar to the second segment we just had on today's show, talking about how these clauses are not really in the spirit of competition that we're told pervades our economy. Continuing from the article, rather, they emphasize that non-competes deprive players of their basic rights to autonomy and self-determination. In a letter to Hell baseball yeah. commissioner Bowie Kuhn, Flood wrote, I do not regard myself as a piece of property to be bought or sold. You know, like, this is, you know, you don't have to be an economist to get that argument. You don't have to, you know, point out the hypocrisy of econ professors in order to make that argument. This is just basic human rights. Uh, so tech workers are human too, which is why they should be able to freely associate with who they want to work with. And they shouldn't be beholden to working with one person. Um, I, I'd say they've been very fortunate in existing in a niche for as long as they have, that has been largely exempt from a lot of the other labor issues that uh, other industries have long been subject to, like factory workers and everything like that, because of the overwhelming attention that tech has had on the modern economy and the, the current economy. Um, but they are still workers, they're still people, and they should be able to, to work for whomever they want. And one of the ways to 
the major way to achieve that, like with everything else in this country, because we've been talking about it all episode. The only way that workers have been able to fight back against non-compete clauses, against severance agreements and so on, they don't have we, we don't have the oodles of money that everyone from baseball team owners to tech overlords to uh, VFX house founders have what we have is each other we have the people and if we collectivize as many places are doing and as i think really terrifies a lot of a, a lot of these bosses that becomes like with kurt flood like with mlbpa that becomes the vehicle through which you can fight back against these things because there is a point at which this is a question of fundamental fairness, of fundamental human rights, of fundamental justice. People cannot be denied the right to self-actualization, which is what creativity is, which is what working on side projects is, which is what your control over your time outside of work is. And there have been there has been such a huge effort to change cultural norms so that we don't think of our own time as belonging to us. And this is part of it. But I think tech workers have finally realized that no amount of higher pay or slides in the uh, or slides at the company building or what was that one weirdo, the, the race car when you walk in, uh, yes. when the, the workers were coming back from the office. They finally realized during the pandemic that none of this is real. None of this is a tangible benefit. What you actually want more than anything is to do what you want to do with your own time. And that is the correct thing to want. So to do that, they're going to have to, it's corny and it's repetitive, but it's also true. They have to have solidarity with each other. They have to unionize. They have to take control of their workplaces. There is no substitute for that. Yeah, that's all well put. Um, We're running up against the hour here, which means I have to allow Noah and Lou to do their side projects. Apparently, they have to feed themselves, I guess. So I'll free them and you, the listener, from hearing us more for this week. I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. And this is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.